as we look to this Advent and Christmas season and we focus on the incarnation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Incarnation meaning incarnate, becoming flesh. As we look to that, I think the most important question for all of us to answer, and I actually think this is the most important question for any person to answer at any time, is this question posed by Henry Nguyen. Do you know the incarnate God? Do you know the incarnate God? Now, if you're a skeptic, or if you're just suspicious... Maybe you think that's a really odd question to be the most important question. You might ask, what is the meaning of life, or how did we all get here? Those are great questions, too, and and they need to be asked, and there are many answers to pursue. And I think that this scripture teaches answers to those questions as well. But I think the most important question for every person to ask is, do you know the incarnate God? And the reason for that is that actually every religion has an opinion about Jesus. You you may not realize it. Christianity kind of claims a bit of priority there, claims a bit of a monopoly on Jesus. But the truth is, nearly every religion has an opinion about Jesus. Uh, You look to Islam. They have an opinion about Jesus. He was a prophet. He was not God. That would be improper. And, And he wasn't crucified on a cross. But he was a prophet. They would say that. You look to, to other religions, and they also likewise have opinions on Jesus. Now their opinions might end up just being, he was a historical figure who died on a cross, and that's all we know about him. There are many people who wouldn't consider themselves very religious at all, and they have opinions on Jesus. Maybe they think he's a historical figure. Maybe they think he died on a cross. Maybe they don't think he died on a cross. Maybe they don't believe he was a historical figure. Now, thankfully, historical scholarship has pretty much debunked that theory. But the point still stands that everyone has an opinion on Jesus. And for a man who has had such an impact on our culture to the point that we have reset our calendar according to his coming, to the point that that millions and even greater numbers across the earth have followed his teaching. But not only have followed his teaching, but they say that his teaching about himself was true, that he was God incarnate, God made man. And if that's what Jesus claimed about himself, then we ought to listen and and really ask the question, is that true? And we ought to ask that question Do you know the incarnate God? Now, implied in that word know is a lot more than just head knowledge. Implied in that word is do you love the incarnate God? Do you obey the incarnate God? Do do, do you give your whole life to the incarnate God? Included in that word know is a much stronger sense than just knowing that Jesus existed, believing that he existed, but actually knowing and trusting that Jesus is who he said he is, and he did what the scriptures declare. So, this morning, as we ask that question of ourselves, we turn to the birth of Jesus, and here we see that Jesus' birth reveals his identity, it reveals his mission, And it reveals his motivation. 
So let's begin first with how Jesus' birth reveals his identity. To, to summarize this story, there was a, a situation. There was a man named Joseph who was betrothed, which is at that time kind of like engaged, but actually more serious. It was engaged to the point of needing some kind of formal separation or divorce to end it. It wasn't marriage. They hadn't come to know each other. Again, using that word know, I'm implying more than just head knowledge. But they didn't do that yet. They weren't married, but they were betrothed. They were very formally engaged. And so, uh, they're in that relationship at the time. And Joseph finds out that his betrothed Mary is pregnant. Which I don't know about you, that would be pretty bad news if you knew that you weren't the father. But you know what? It says Joseph was a just man and a righteous man, which really here means that he wanted to obey God's law. And so what he sought to do in this circumstance was to obey God's law since there had been some kind of, in his mind, illicit affair that he was going to quietly resolve this through a divorce, which was allowed according to the law in these circumstances. And so planning on doing this, though, he, uh, it says in verse 19, sorry, 20, but as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now this was done to fulfill the scriptures, Matthew tells us. So that when, in verse 24, Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So here we have, Joseph is a very fascinating figure to me, and I'm, I'm actually going to reserve a lot of my thoughts about Joseph until next week. Uh, but Joseph doesn't say a word here. You know, in the, in the stories of Jesus' birth, here in Matthew, but also in Luke, not many words are said by the figures in them. The most we really get out of either of them is in Luke, Mary has this beautiful uh, song that she prays to the Lord uh, that we remember as the Magnificat. It's only in that, that beautiful psalm, song which all points to Jesus and the significance of his birth. But otherwise, we don't get a whole lot of their thoughts out loud at all. Uh, we get a little explanation of maybe a little bit how they were feeling. You know, he didn't want to put Mary to shame, so he resolved to divorce her. Quiet. We get some of this information. But the story is so stripped down, pared down, so that the focus can all be not just on the parents, but specifically on the son, the son that has come, the son that is not just born from Mary, but was conceived by the Holy Spirit, not from an illicit affair, but, but from a divine miracle. You, you may remember, he still gets around every now and then, you may remember Larry King. He's on TV interviewing for, I'd say years, but that would probably undersell it, decades. Now, Larry King is from a Jewish background, but he's not very religious. He's very secular overall. And he was uh, having a conversation with someone one, at one point where he 
They're, they're talking about Jesus. And he said, you know, what would you ask Jesus if you could meet him? And the person gave their answer. And he said, he said, I would ask him if he believed that he was born of virgin birth. Because whatever the answer is changes or reinforces the world. You know, throughout the 20th century, there are many people, professed Christians, who worked in historical scholarship or New Testament scholarship, and many of them did not affirm the truthfulness of the virgin conception of Jesus. They might even affirm the resurrection of Jesus, that he was raised from the dead. But for historical reasons, they thought, they did not affirm his virgin birth. Now, there's a lot more that goes into that conversation. Uh, Many of those scholars were relying on certain other scholars who had made certain claims, and they never really got around to looking at it all. And some of them just had kind of taken on this view and moved on and hadn't really thought about it much other than to say that they did not affirm this view. So, So because of that, and because of the significance of this question, because if Jesus would say, no, I don't believe I was born of a virgin, well, that implies that he was born of a human father and a human mother. In which case, we would very much question whether he was the son of God at all. So I think it's worth noting some of the reasons we can have confidence in the virgin birth. First of all, is the historical witness. I'll tell you, I remember being a believer in my senior year of high school. And I did what a lot of high schoolers do. I would call myself, this isn't a biblical metaphor, this is a Chandler metaphor. I'd call myself a hot, cold Christian. Uh, one summer I would go to camp and I would come back and I'd be fueled and I'd be ready and then by about halfway through the year I wouldn't be attending youth group much at all. I wouldn't be very involved in church. I'd probably be skipping a lot of Sundays. And I did things like that off and on. Sometimes it had to do with camps or conferences. Usually it just had to do with however I was feeling at a given time. And I remember in my senior year I'd really started getting, well, really started focusing on my faith, and, and I had felt that I might be called to ministry, and so I was kind of focusing in on that. So I remember I had, uh, elected, I had some classes at the college in the morning, but I had to come back for my choir class, and the room would be empty, and I'd just be sitting there by myself if I got there early. So I sat there, and I was reading my Bible one day. Don't know what I was reading. Who knows? But I had a friend in choir with me who was an atheist, and he came, and he sat down, and he said, you're reading that, said, yeah, said, look at you, a good Christian, yeah, whatever. And he said, do you really believe what's in that book? I didn't even know to say no or maybe not, so I just said, yeah, I do. He said, man, I just don't know. You know, he said, you know, you Christians, you, you make fun of other religions for how ridiculous their claims are. He said, you know, you, you, you make fun of some other group of people because they, they found their scriptures on golden tablets. And he said, but... You believe Jesus was born of a virgin? He's like, I think y'all are the crazy ones. And you know what? At that moment, the Lord did not give me anything to say. I just said, you know, I just kind of moved on, and I didn't have a defense. I didn't have an answer. That really concerned me, that I didn't have a defense or an answer. So I went and I talked to a member of my church who was very into what they call apologetics, defending the faith. And the pastor recommended I go talk to him. 
And he was, he was a great guy, and his, his eyes got real big, and he was really excited telling me about this. And he was telling me, he said, oh, those are completely different. He said, oh, he said, the virgin birth, he said, go to Luke. You see in Luke that, that this family already had all eyes on them. He said, you had Elizabeth, Mary's cousin, who was uh, pregnant, and her husband could no longer speak. And throughout the pregnancy, he could not talk. And so the whole community would have been looking at this family and paying attention. And he said, then comes along Mary, who's found to be pregnant. And yet, even though many of them might not have believed, the records that we have still say that she was born of a virgin. They didn't give up on that belief even though the whole community was watching. And he goes on and on and on. He talks about the the reliability of the New Testament and how the New Testament is a good historical document for us. He goes on about how believable the virgin birth is simply by the historical testimony of Scripture and and the confidence that we can have in it. That just blew my mind. Now, that's not an open-shut case. There's more to be said. But it also helps us as Christians to know that the virgin birth is consistent with other beliefs that we have. I mentioned those 20th century scholars. Part of their problem was they said Matthew and Luke talk about a virgin birth, but John and Paul talk about a pre-existent son. Now, I'll be honest with you, I've had many conversations about that, that point. And I don't know anyone today who thinks those things are clearly in conflict. In fact, I look at those things and I'm like, that makes complete sense. If he's the pre-existent son, it makes perfect sense that in being conceived in human form, it would make sense that God would do that through a virgin woman rather than a couple coming together. It makes perfect sense to me. So I think it's consistent with other Christian doctrine. Another reason to affirm it, especially as Christians, is the early church's affirmation of this. It's biblical. Matthew and Luke talk about it clearly. It's consistent with what other biblical writers said and wrote. But it's also creedal. The early church's creeds, which are really just summaries of the gospel, all of them, uh, the, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, they affirm the virgin birth. Now, that's what's interesting to me. There's a lot of things that are not affirmed in those creeds because those creeds were meant to hit on the essentials of the gospel. And yet the fact that Jesus was born of a virgin named Mary is in those creeds. That's how essential they saw this doctrine. They didn't see it as something that you could just take or leave. It was part and parcel of following and believing in Jesus. And the last reason is this, the plausibility. That it is plausible, very plausible, that Jesus was born of a virgin. For one, if God can raise Jesus from the dead, if he can do a thing like that, is it really that crazy to think that he could conceive a child in the womb of Mary? I don't think so at all. Furthermore, I'll I'll leave it at this. Christians profess that all of creation comes from God, and it comes from nothing. You're telling me if God can create everything, you have a problem with him creating a a baby, an embryo in the womb of Mary? Makes no sense to me. I like what Glenn Scrivener said. This was a quote that's come out in the last couple of years, four or five years maybe. He just wrote this. I think it really helps me. If, if I was with my atheist friend today, this is what I'd say to him. Christians believe in the virgin birth of Jesus. 
Atheists believe in the virgin birth of the universe. Choose your miracle. The reality is, things don't get easier when you deny the miracles in Scripture. They actually get a lot harder, in my opinion. But what is the significance of the virgin birth? It's not just something we defend because it has to be something we believe. There's meaning behind it. You you may remember the Southern Baptist pastor, Adrian Rogers. He's also served as the president of the SBC. He said at one time, Jesus was as much man as if he weren't God, and as much God as if he weren't man. The the virgin birth points to the full humanity of Jesus and the full divinity of Jesus. And that word full is carrying a lot of weight there. The, The way I understand that means that Jesus is not any less God because he has a human nature. And he's not any less man because he has a divine nature. But he is both fully God and fully man. Without nuance. Without qualification. There's not a list of things that we have to say, well, since God is, is, is taking on a human nature, we now have to say, well, he can't be omnipotent. Or he can't be omniscient. Or he can't... No! The fullness of God was present in the fully human Jesus. We know Jesus was fully human. The virgin birth points to this. The fact that Jesus was born of a woman helps us see that Jesus was fully man. He didn't just appear one day. It's not like people were walking down the road and all of a sudden this 30-year-old man comes out and he's, he's preaching from a mountain and everyone goes, that's great. Where's this guy from? And they're like, we don't know. He just showed up. No, you look at Jesus. He was born It says he grew in in wisdom and stature. We only get really a story of his birth, his conception and his birth, and then a story of him at 12 years old until we finally see him as an adult beginning his ministry. But it's important that before he began his ministry, all those years came before. Because Jesus needed to be fully human. Jesus couldn't come to the cross as some part, part human and redeem all of humanity. I mean, to to put it really simply, if Jesus had come to this earth with no human soul, he couldn't redeem the soul of every human. If Jesus came to this earth without eyes, he couldn't redeem the eyes of every human. Now, you might be thinking, well, some humans don't have eyes. I'm aware of that. But he had everything that was essential to being a human, except sin. The only thing that differentiates the humanity of Jesus from our humanity, is that while we sin like it's the new thing on the block, Jesus never sinned. He was tempted in all ways like us, but never sinned. So he's born of a woman, as Galatians 4.4 says. He's born in the likeness of men, as Philippians 2.7 says. He was in all ways like us. Sin accepted, as Hebrews 4.15 teaches us. He said that Jesus' full humanity is protected by the virgin birth. He's not some ghost. He's not some apparition. He He is body and blood and bone. He is a full human person, both body and soul. And so we see that through the virgin birth, he is fully human. But we also see that he is fully God. 
I, I actually think this isn't an open shut case. In theory, I guess God could create a human through a virgin birth that wasn't fully God. I think that would maybe be possible. But it makes sense that if Jesus is the Son of God, the only way for him to take on human flesh would be something like this where God shows, God demonstrates that this seed, that this offspring, that this child is not some mere human being, but is someone that was divinely sent by God the Father. As the Athanasian Creed says, another good summary of some theological principles, I just like the way it puts this. It says, He is God from the essence of the Father, begotten before time. And he is human from the essence of his mother, begotten in time, completely God, completely human, with a rational soul and human flesh, equal to the Father as regards divinity, less than the Father as regards humanity. I remember the preacher H.B. Charles uh, saying something like, he was younger than his mama, but older than his daddy at the same time, or as old as his daddy at the same time. That, that Jesus is both a child from his mother, but also the eternal son of God, who through the, by the Father, from the Father, created this world. It's a wonderful and beautiful mystery that Christians everywhere confess. And when we get to this Christmas time in which we drag our relatives to church and they see nativity scenes and they hear the carols about Jesus, they don't always notice the radical teaching that God has become man. And even if they hear those words, they may not fully understand what that means. I can tell you this. I don't think I fully understand what that means. We, we do not say that in the incarnation that, the, that God the Son ceased to be fully God. We do not say that. We do not think he stopped to be God in any respect whatsoever in order to become human. Nor are we saying that God the Son merely appeared to be human in the incarnation. When God the Son became incarnate, he added unto himself a complete human nature. And as God, as God, this is the relevance of all this. You might be thinking, well, this is great theology, but it's not super helpful for my life. Well, if you want salvation, this is of utmost importance to your life. Because as God, Jesus was a sufficient atoning sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. This wasn't some situation where they picked a random guy who was generally morally good and said, you're going to die for the whole world. Isn't that a great story? You'll come and be the substitute. You get no choice in the matter. You're the best one of us. You're the nicest. You, you seem to know the most stuff about the, the scriptures and things. We're going to put you on a cross and kill you for our sins. That's not what happened. Instead, God the Father planned and sent his only begotten Son, the Son of God, the eternal Son. The Son, he did not create the Son. He begat the Son, but he did not create the Son. He sent his Son to take on human flesh and die on the cross for our sin. And because he was God, he was able to pay an infinite price for the infinite offenses against God. It's so important that Jesus was fully God. 
as he died on the cross. But it's also important that he was fully human. As I said before, he needed to be fully human in order to redeem all of humanity. I don't know about you, but I don't want any part of myself, my body or my soul, tainted by sin. I don't want any part of it unredeemed. And so Jesus died as a fully human God that we might be redeemed through him, that our sins might be fully paid for and forgiven. Now, Jesus' birth reveals his identity, but it also reveals his mission. We see in the story that he is named. He is named Jesus. In the Hebrew, that's Yeshua. In the Greek, that's Yesu. But it, 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 what's interesting, actually, is you might be thinking, well, wouldn't it make sense for one of the books in the Bible to be named after Jesus? I mean, he gets, he gets four books in the Bible dedicated to his life, death, and resurrection, and yet none of them are named for him. I'll tell you this. This is just a fun fact. There is a book in your Bible named Jesus. Does anyone know what it is? Joshua. That's right. His name in the Hebrew is Joshua, Yeshu. It's the, it's the same name as Joshua who had come before. And that name means Yahweh saves. Now, the fact that Joshua had that name should tell us something. The name itself does not mean Jesus is God. If Jacob can have, or sorry, Joshua can have that name, and Jesus can have that name, and we know Joshua was not God, well, then, then the fact that his name is Yahweh saves doesn't mean anything. It just declares that Yahweh except for this. Matthew explains why he gets that name. And it's not the same reason Joshua has that name. It says in verse 21 that she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus will save his people from their sins. That's why he's named Jesus, which means Yahweh the one true living God of the Old Testament scripture and of the entire world saves. If he's named God saves because he will save, you know what that tells us? That he is God. And, and he comes to save. His mission is to save. He will save his people from their sins. Now what's interesting is that he saves his people not just a bunch of persons, but his people. He will save a whole group. This is important because in a culture, in, in decades in which evangelism looked like getting people to accept something that they cognitively believe and then leaving them to their own devices, we let go of something so important in the scriptures, which is when you are called to Christ, you are called to his church. And so when we are saved, we are brought into his people. We are brought into the church. This is so essential. I, I had one pastor put it this way, and I, I actually do really like this. Uh, maybe, maybe I shouldn't. Once I say it, you'll understand why maybe I shouldn't. But he said, if you love Jesus but not his church, as many people say, you know, I love Jesus, I'm good with Jesus, I just don't like the church. It'd be like going up to a man and saying, brother, I love you, but your wife is kind of a dog. Because the church is the bride of Christ. The church is the body of Christ on earth. Can you imagine how your brother is going to feel about you after you say a thing like that? Now ask yourself this. What is God the Father going to think of you 
when you say, I'm good with Jesus, I've got no problems with Jesus, but his church, I have no time or patience or anything for it. I do not want to stand on the other side of that judgment, having believed a thing like that. He will save his people from what? From their sins. Jesus came into the world at a time when God's people expected that the Christ, the Messiah, was going to come to save them from sinners, from other people. They wanted the Messiah to come to save them from those Roman sinners, those Gentile sinners. Yet Jesus' mission was not to save them from sinners directly, but to save them from their sins. This is a common problem. It's very common for us to expect God to save us from those sinners outside there and not focus the proper attention on the mission of God, which is to save us from our sin inside here. The reality is the reason that you have sinners out there that you are opposed to is either because the sin in their hearts or the sin in your heart. The reality is that we need to be saved from ourselves, from our own sin, from our own failure to obey God's word and follow in his way. So we pray, Lord, save us from that politician or that political party. Save us from the the school board making a certain decision. Save us from whatever it may be. I'm I'm emphasizing politics, but but it could be save us from those enemies over there in that foreign country. And, And listen, I'm all for praying for things like that. But we have to remember how those things actually get fixed is that people come to faith Jesus Christ. We have been playing in the world so long, we have started to play like the world. We have started to play their game. That's never been the call of the church. It's not to say that we're not in the world, but we don't want to become of the world. We want to be distinguishable from the world. And you know what? That means our primary mission, although there's many other good things we can do, things that we're even we're commanded to do, but our primary mission is to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to as many people as possible, that they might repent and believe. That's going to go a lot farther than trying to teach them that their philosophies are wrong, that the way they were raised was wrong. you, You may have to say that in the course of preaching the gospel to them, but we're not calling them to a general morality. We're not calling them to a political affiliation. We're not calling them to a certain socioeconomic status. We're calling them to the kingdom of God. We're calling them to give their only and utmost allegiance to Jesus as king. We're calling them to join in Christ's mission to bring salvation to all people. And so we have to make very clear what we're doing in our mission We want to do the same thing that Jesus does. And we can't deal with our own sin ourselves. We cannot deal with that problem ourselves. We need Yahweh to save. We need Jesus to save. And that means that we have to trust ultimately, not not in how persuasive we are for a certain agenda we have, or how persuasive we are for a certain set of morals that we have. But we have to be persuasive. We have to be prayerful 
in pointing people to the cross of Jesus. In Romans 6, 6, Paul writes, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. What gets us out of slavery to sin? Jesus and his death on the cross. What gives us the ability to crucify our old selves and move forward in newness of life? Jesus on the cross. As John Owen said, there is no death of sin without the death of Christ. Any attempt to defeat sin and defeat the problems in this world apart from Christ is going to be ultimately fruitless. Finally, we see that Jesus' birth reveals his motivation. Matthew, citing the prophet Isaiah, quotes, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, here's one of the good things about technology. Actually, last year at Christmas time, we preached the passage that this verse comes from. So, if you want to hear more from that side of it, you're welcome to go online and, and, and view that sermon. You can find it in the Advent series, I think, on our website. But looking at it in the context of Matthew, he's wanting to say that the Old Testament is being fulfilled in Jesus. First of all, the angel says to Joseph, son of David, take this woman as your wife. Son of David. It's important that Jesus is from the line of David. He, he, it's important that Joseph is the son of David, so that the lineage that he has is attached to Jesus. But not only that, not only is he from the line of David, but he also fulfills the prophecies about the coming Messiah, of what God is going to do. Such that they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Maybe we want to translate this God with us. Maybe we want to say God is with us, as some translations do. Maybe we want to say it means the with us God. But we see the motivation of Jesus here, that he is God with us. That's what the Son of God does. He comes to us. I remember, maybe you know the preacher David Platt. I remember years ago he did this short little video. It's great. In which he says that, you know, a lot of people believe of, think of religion and spirituality like this. You know, everyone is on a journey. We're all climbing up the mountain, and we're all taking different paths. We may be taking one religious path or one or another. And when we get to the top, you know what's there? God. We're all just trying to make our way to God. And he said, the difference is Christianity does not teach that at all. Christianity teaches that the God who is the true creator and redeemer of the universe came down from the mountain to find us. That Jesus came to us. That he drew near to us. The story isn't that we're journeying our way up a mountain to find God. Instead, God has come to us and he has pursued us. If you are a Christian this morning, it's because the God of the universe has pursued you in Christ. That he came, that the Son of God came and, and took on human flesh, but he did not sin so that he could go to the cross and be a perfect sacrifice. We take comfort in this fact. We take comfort in the fact that God is in pursuit. In fact, we just need to give up on running the other direction. That's what God has called us to do. To turn around is the word repent implies. To trust in him. To trust that he's got you. That he has redeemed you. If you are a Christian this morning... Take so much comfort 
in the fact that we call Jesus Emmanuel, that we call him God with us. What's amazing is God is not just over us, greater than us, more glorious than us, but he's also with us. He's taken upon himself a human nature, just like yours. He's walked this earth among us. Now, not specifically, you know, a hundred or so of us, but he's walked among our people, human beings. And he's still with us now. But not just with us, but in some sense in us. The God who is in us. Because the Holy Spirit has come to dwell in us. The Spirit of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ has come to us. The story isn't over. And the story's still not over. Because even as we have the Spirit dwelling in us, He is just preparing for us. He is preparing us for that time in which Christ returns again. And this time, He's going to be fully and finally with us. And there will be no end to that truth. And until then, we remember Emmanuel, God with us. In every life circumstances, we cry, Emmanuel. In trial, Emmanuel. In temptation, Emmanuel. In triumph, Emmanuel. In desperation, Emmanuel. In contentment, Emmanuel. In poverty, Emmanuel. In wealth, Emmanuel. In sickness, Emmanuel. In health, Emmanuel. In life, Emmanuel. And in death, Emmanuel. There is no place, there is no circumstance in which God is not with us. He has not forsaken or abandoned us. And so in every circumstance, in every trial, in every difficulty, in every good thing we receive, God is with us. And we must hold fast and cling to the truth that we cannot run from him far enough for him not to find us. We cannot hide ourselves well enough for him to find us. We can't even die and be out of the presence of the Lord. So we take comfort that God is always with us. As we look to these truths, I said before that, that, that if you're not a Christian and you come to Christian things and you go to nativities and you see the plays and you see the movies, you may not notice the truth underneath all that. I think of these words from one of the famous hymns that gets sung by many people, including many non-religious people this time of the year where it says, Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. We see the fullness of God in the person of Jesus Christ. We see God with us, in the person of Jesus Christ. We see a God who is pleased as man to dwell with men. And we say glory to this newborn king. So I ask you one more time, do you know the incarnate God? Let's pray.